What a different Easter, huh? It's not what we'd planned. We've had to replan and change. And man, over the last couple of weeks, I'm sure your life has looked the same as you've tried to calculate and change and mold and adapt to all of these different situations that are coming at you. But I wonder what it is that you have as your hope through this time. Is it that maybe at some point you'll get your health back? Or that you'll keep your health through this whole thing? Or is it that at some point maybe you get your job back? Or you get a job? Or that you keep your job through this whole thing? Or that your finances will get back on track? Or that at some point your kids will go back to school? I'm not sure what it is. There's a million things you could put on that list. But I want to ask you another question. What happens if that doesn't happen? What happens if the thing that you're hoping for and that you're planning for doesn't happen? What then? See, as humans, we are all wired for a need for hope. That's what we want to dig into today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. And I'll read it for you. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation and ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, the first thing you might notice as you're reading through that, if you're in the NASB like I am, is that there are only two periods that are found in all six of those verses. Other translations will break that up much more, but actually in the original Greek, that is one long run-on sentence. And if you're a grammar teacher right now, it's driving you crazy because it's reminding you of me back in high school. Who am I kidding? Me still now. My grammar and my spelling are horrible. But for Paul, this is a beautiful, complex thought that continues to lead and lean on each other as it goes through it. So let's dig into this. So a little bit of what's happening right now. Jesus Christ has lived on the earth this perfect life and he's gone to the cross and he's died and he's risen from the dead and then he's met with people and he's talked with them after they've seen him, this living Jesus. And then he ascends back into heaven and now it's been 20 or 30 years since that time. And Peter is writing to a group of Christians Now, the news about what had happened to Jesus continued to spread 
all over after that. And you can imagine why. This is a big deal. But as it spread, it was not like life was easy for these new converts that's continued to follow Jesus' ways and trust in him, what he had done on the cross. In fact, life was pretty hard. And the rest of Peter starts to talk us through what this looks like for this. And so he's writing to a group of Christians in Asia Minor. Or if you're looking at a map on a modern map now, this would be Turkey. And up by the Black Sea, and there's these groups of Christians that have followed Jesus, and they're facing all of this hardship. In fact, throughout the chapter in Peter, throughout the letter, it starts to tell us the different things that they're facing. In, in chapter 2, it tells us that they're being abused by their bosses. In chapter 3, it goes on to tell us they're being threatened by spouses. In chapter 4, the next chapter, it goes on to tell us that they're, they have all these skeptics that are ridiculing them. And even in verses 12 through 18, it tells them that they could possibly be facing some violence and stronger persecution. And so how does Peter reply to them? He picks up his pen and he goes to verse 3 and he says, Blessed be or praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's, what's the deal here? Was, was Peter not watching the news Did he not understand what was happening to these people? How was he calling them to praise God in the midst of this? What he was actually doing is he was trying to get them to raise their head off of the perspective and the situation that was happening onto a broader and bigger perspective. It kind of reminds me of a story about when I had taken my kids to this life-size maze. This thing was massive. And you've been to some of these like corn mazes or different things where you get in, you start to try and navigate around, you can't see Well, this thing had these huge walls. So once you got in, all you could see were different directions you could take. It went all the way to the floor and above your head. And so we were trying to navigate and you could get stuck in this thing for hours. But as we weaved around, we would find there are different points. We'd come back to the same spot or we would uh, go and run into a dead end again. But in the middle, as we got closer to the middle of this maze, we saw rising up above it was this tower stationed in the very center of this maze. And so I got over to the tower and there are steps that you could climb up to. And as you started to climb up onto this ledge on the tower, you gained a whole different perspective. You would come out of the midst of this maze and now you could see where it leaned or where it led and it changed everything. And Peter is trying to tell them, hey, I'm not calling you to praise because of your circumstances, but I'm calling you to praise in the midst of your circumstances. He's not belittling the pain and the difficulty that they're experiencing, but he's calling them to celebrate because of something. What is that? He goes on in verse three to tell us, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now he starts dropping in all these words in it is that we have to spend a little time to define Because the first one that may stand out to you as you read through this verse is this word born again. It's kind of one of those words that's been hijacked a little bit since Peter's written it. And all these images may come to your mind. Maybe these Christians that are picketing or these preachers that are yelling or maybe political views or whatever it is. But it's not this flavor of Christianity. In fact, what he's referring to is this whole new life that's been found because of what Jesus has done. And for sure, he's thinking back to the story of Jesus talking with this Pharisee, Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him that he must be born again. And 
And Nicodemus is like, how is this possible? What do you, what do you mean? Like, I'm a little old to go back into my mother's womb. But Jesus wasn't talking about a physical birth. He was talking about a spiritual birth. And it literally means a rebirth or a new birth, or we could say a second birth. And this for these believers was incredible. And we, we see that when we look at the context of this. We are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is now alive. And because of that, you can join him in new life, in spiritual life, in this rebirth. I mean, just think about it for a second. Have you ever seen somebody come back from the dead? I can admit I haven't. And if I have, it would probably freak me out. And so for these disciples and these believers, they've seen Jesus do incredible things. But Jesus has always been performing. There is a power working through him that performed these amazing things. And yet now they just saw him come back from the dead on his own. And this changed everything for them. They started to look at the whole world from a whole new perspective. This started to change the way they thought and the way they lived. They actually started to gather even differently. It was at this point that they started gathering on Sundays rather than Saturdays to study and to worship and to be together. This changed their routines of the week. This changed who they viewed themselves to be and their identity. This changed everything for them. This new birth was now a new way to live. So he tells us that we are born again. It's this new way to live. And he tells us that it happens because of mercy. That's another word that we got to define because you're never going to be able to explode in the praise that he talks about at the beginning of verse three, unless you understand mercy and mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. This is one way that's put in scripture in Romans three verses 10 and 11 says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. What this verse is telling us is that we all deserve just judgment. We long for justice. We talk about that. We, when we're wronged, we want justice. We want the person who has wronged us to be judged. But when we have done the wrong, we don't want judgment. We want mercy. What this verse is telling us is that none of us can be good enough to cover for the stuff that we've done. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are dead in our sins. There's nothing that we can do. You can put nice clothes on a corpse, but it's still dead. What this verse is telling us is that we deserve judgment. But Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5 says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. What this means is that God offers us everything that Jesus deserves. And he puts on Jesus everything that we deserve. Jesus took the judgment that we were due. It's an incredible thing. And this then leads us to hope. But this is another word we have to look at in this. Because when we think of hope, we talk about it like a chance or like wishful thinking. Like, I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope we win the game. But when Peter is using the word hope, 
He's not thinking of it in those terms at all. In fact, what he means here and what the word that he uses means is that it's a 100% guarantee. There's no chance that this will not happen. He's saying it is a sure thing. And this hope isn't just something that he lists as hope. He actually lists it as a living hope. Now, why would you do that? Well, what's the opposite of a living hope? It's a dead hope. It's a false hope. And what we find is that what we put our hope in impacts how we live and who we view ourselves to be and how we think. It changes everything. You don't believe me? Check this out. I found this article. It's called The Diet of Defeat. Why Football Fans Mourn with High-Fat Food. And in the article, it went on to say that there was a direct link to how football fans tended to eat the day after the game based on a win or a loss. These researchers actually had people watch a game and then set food out and recorded it. And the results showed that after a loss, fans' consumption of saturated fat went up 16%. And then after a win, their consumption of saturated fat decreased by 9%. I actually went on to say in football crazy cities, that fans ate 28% more saturated fat after a loss. Now, I know this probably doesn't apply to us in Lincoln or in Nebraska as a football crazy city, but the, the researchers also went on to do some other experiments and they found a solution. They said this, even if you're rooting for a perennial loser, there is a solution. If you're concerned about healthy eating, they went on to explain that after a defeat, write down what is really important to you in life. They actually had people do this and it changed their eating habits. Now I share with this article and this information with you for a couple of reasons. For one, it might explain some of the weight gain over the past couple of seasons, right? But for another, it really demonstrates what happens when we put our hope in a false hope, in a dead hope, something that can't satisfy. Now, there's nothing wrong with football. I love football, but it can't be my ultimate hope. And with and if and when it fails me, and it will, then I'll just try to find another hope. And that could be food, or that could be shopping, or that could be any other million of things that we could put on the list. There is only one living hope that is ultimate that will satisfy. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, if I find in myself a desire with which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but were only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. He's saying that these hopes are to awaken our realization for the ultimate hope. They're to lead us to realize none of them can fulfill the desire that we have within us and the need. Only that can be met through Jesus, who is our living hope. Peter goes on to write about it another way. In verse 4, he says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. He's using this financial metaphor, this inheritance, this money in the bank, 
something that cannot be touched by any circumstance or person or anything. It's not going to fade. It's not going to devalue. It's not going to spoil. In fact, he says in verse 4, it's reserved in heaven for you, or you could say kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what he's not saying here is just to wait it out, hunker down. At some point down the road, you're going to get to heaven and things will be okay. No, he's speaking of heaven in terms of that is the place where God is protecting it. It is safe. So your future hope is secure. And that can change the way you live now. For sure, you'll experience this realization, like in verse 7 when he says, at the revelation of Jesus, or when Jesus comes back to take the believers with him and to judge the world, we're going to experience the fullness of our salvation. But the inheritance that we have is given so that we can walk through with faith and surety everything we experience in this life and actually view it with a different perspective. That's why he goes on in verse 6 to say, In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. I don't think this translation does the best because it gives this leading that you may not face trials. But Jesus promised, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So it's not a question of if we will experience difficulty in this life. We will. But it's what we do with the difficulty. How in the world is it possible to greatly rejoice in the midst of suffering? Unless somehow I see a value in that, what that suffering can produce. It's actually really interesting. There was this Jewish psychiatrist. His name is Viktor Frankl. And he lived during the Holocaust. He actually ended up in the concentration camp in Dachau and survived to come out of it. And he wrote books, several books after it. But since he was this young psychiatrist, while he was there at night, after all the work, he would meet with the other prisoners and take notes and and work with them. And what was so fascinating to him is he said, what impacted people the most is over a lifetime, usually the hopes that they hope in are lost at some point. And they deal with them in different ways. But in this short amount of time during the Holocaust, all of the normal things that people lost were all massively lost at once. He said, if you think about it, at some point, if you live long enough, you'll lose your health. It's going to decline at some point. And at some point, if you live long enough, you'll experience a loss in your family. At some point, if you live long enough, you'll have a loss in your profession or in your work or in your social status. All of these things will not last forever. They're going to fail us at some point. But what he experienced was all these things failed these people at once. And how they responded was so fascinating to him. He said there were some people that were the kindest, nicest people, but when this happened, they became so brutal. They started looking out only for themselves at the expense of the others around them. He said other people tried to deal with this by just doing whatever they could to become numb to the whole situation. Try and make it just all lull away and lull life away. They said the third people tried to just live in this fantasy world that once this was done, things would all go back to normal. They'd get their jobs back, their families back, or all these different pieces. He actually told one story of a guy 
that was sure that the war would end on a certain date. And as that date came and went, the day after he got a fever and with the loss of hope died within days. How people responded depended on the hope that they were holding on to. What he went on to note and said was that the people that were able to rise above the situation were able to do it because they found a hope that was a bigger perspective. Something that no circumstance or no captor could touch. That's what Peter's talking about through this. That's why he goes on to say in verse 7, So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter uses this picture of this metal worker that's going through this refining process. And he takes this piece of gold, even though it has so much hope and value for us, even this gold and money won't last. That can't be our ultimate hope. But this, this metal worker takes this gold and he, under intense pressure and heat, melts it down. And as he does that, all of the impurities are exposed and rise to the surface. And then that metal worker can take and he can come and draw out those impurities and have a pure metal. Peter says that suffering can do the same thing in our lives. Did you know that this coronavirus, do you know that the health concerns, do you know that the financial concerns, that none of these are the source of your anxiety? They're not. They're merely a situation that is exposing the true hope that you're leaning on. And they're exposing the authenticity of that hope. Anxiety is only meant to be this warning sign to show you that the thing you're hoping in can't cut it. Because there's only one ultimate hope. So I wonder what you've been experiencing over the last couple of weeks. What's come to surface through this hardship? Because God wants to take this time and refine in our lives and draw us to lean only and solely on him not to take hold of these things that will not last. He's given us an inheritance that will last. That's why Paul understood this and said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a reality of a perspective that's so much larger in what we have in Jesus and the hope we have that allows us not to be anxious, but to be sure. Now, people of hope start to transform the world in incredible ways, especially in the midst of difficult situations. I could go on to share with you a story about Christians uh, in Greco-Roman Empire early in the first century and when the plague swept through and how they actually even put their lives at risk to go care for people. By 300 AD, how Christianity had spread all over that Roman Empire. But I think what would be even more encouraging would be to hear how hope-filled people here in Lincoln who have a surety in Jesus have been responding to give hope that they've found in the way that it is making an impact. 
Hey! Hi! <laughs> uh, hey, we went out to our neighbors to <laughs> let them know that we cared about them and did something a little bit different. Uh, we went out and got toilet paper rolls, we got sneaker bars, and we wrote a letter. Uh, and we combined those things and Eliza and Riley went out with me and Eliza helped me drop off uh, these little gifts to our neighbors essentially saying uh, hey we care about you uh, if you want to talk come on over uh, obviously toilet paper just having fun uh, in light of the fact that everybody wanted toilet paper and a snicker bar because hey uh, who doesn't like a snicker bar so we did that we did that as a family it was a lot of fun Eliza did you have fun yeah <laughs> do you want to do it again all right and that's what we did I've been able to connect with people during this time just by making some short phone calls. So one of the calls I made, I dialed a woman that, that I knew her name and she answered and she said, oh my gosh, Brad, I was, I was just getting ready to call you or I wanted to call you. And so I said, why? She said, well, you remember I interviewed you six years ago for, this, for your uh, journey with cancer and I'm now diagnosed with cancer. And, and so I just wanted to connect. I was able to uh, talk with her and share a couple of the God experiences I had while going through cancer that was meaningful to me. And then we were able to pray together and uh, she let me know. I had called and just caught her going out the door. She was going to radiation treatment. And so uh, I'm so glad that God's timing was good and that she answered before she uh, took off for that treatment. With all the fear in this pandemic, Jacob and I decided to hand out some cards to our neighbors to let them know that we're here for them and we can help in any way that we can help. Yeah, so we handed them out and later that day I received a phone call and just said, hey, I'm so-and-so, um, I got your card, are you serious? And I was like, uh, what do you mean? And she goes, are you serious about helping? And I thought, absolutely. Um, turns out it was our 92-year-old neighbor, uh, and she was cooped up in her house and needed to get some essential medication, had no one to get it for her. So we were able to go and get the medication for her, um, and it was just a cool way to continue to get connected with people in our neighborhood. We wanted to do something for our neighbors during this time of quarantine and just to provide some hope, um, some encouragement to them. So we prayed about it and I decided I'd like to give them each a box of tea. So with that, we wrote a note and had our phone numbers on there and just offered our services that we were available um, if they needed anything during this time. So I thought it would be fun to take those little packages and put them on each person's porch quietly and let them discover them for themselves. But. I uh, kind of wanted to see my neighbors. I was tired like most of us are just being cooped up. So I, I have a, about a 15 foot long tree saw and I put a little plastic tub on the end and we put the tea in that and then we went over and uh, knocked on the doors and uh, gave it to our neighbors from a safe distance. So just wanted to be an encouragement to them and keep building that relationship and hopefully the Lord will use it in some way. But uh, it was just fun to see our neighbors and uh, have that time together and make a memory. People that share hope in the midst of suffering are transformed people. People that have peace in the midst of anxious times are a new kind of human. People that are generous when the world is in chaos have been able to see and understand a different perspective. That is why he goes on to say, that this inheritance and this living hope will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ.
It's telling us that we will never find the validation we need from the people here. We will never find the celebration or praise or honor that we're looking for through any of our accomplishments or through any of these false hopes. They can only be found when Jesus, the one who created us and gave us breath, says, well done. When the God that delights in us looks at us and gives us honor for the way that we have walked through difficult things and become more like him. Peter had walked with Jesus. He had talked with him. He had known him. He would heard his teaching and he witnessed him raising from the dead. And this changed everything for him. But these people that he's writing to now, they didn't have the opportunity to actually physically walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus. And yet, this understanding of the truth of the resurrection and the salvation God provides changed and transforms their life. He goes on to speak of it in this way in verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter, he's going to go on to actually be executed at some point. He'll be hung upside down on a cross. And when this time comes and this hardship, he doesn't deny Christ. What's changed? What's transformed in his life? He's realized a bigger perspective of what life is all about. That's why this verse would ring true for him too. In Philippians 1 verse 21, it says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When life and then ultimately death strips me of everything that this world has to offer, and yet gives me Jesus, I want nothing more. Now, I don't know where you're at, but maybe in the living room right now, you realize you've been chasing these false hopes. You've had dreams that have continued to let you down. And right now you're realizing for the first time that the God of this universe loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross in your place, to take the punishments that we deserve, that you deserve from the sin in your life. And in place, he offers you new life with him. If that's true, I encourage you right now from your home to just talk to God and tell him, God, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died and rose again for me. And I accept you as my God and Savior. Jesus, I want to follow you as my ultimate living hope. Today, we celebrate Easter. And if Jesus' body is still in that tomb, then I might as well go and grab a shovel and start digging a hole in the backyard and take all of my hopes and dreams that I've been carrying in this life and bury them all too because they are all dead as well. And all hope is dead. But the tomb is empty. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He died and rose again three days later, fulfilling God's covenant to us, offering us a living hope. 
And if we have a living hope, this changes everything.